0: This is the On The Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. In season two, episode 12 and 13, I had the chance not too long ago to interview Daniel Workman of The Daniel Workman Show. And if you follow Daniel on social media, You know that for a long period of time he hosted Soccer Works, a fellow soccer podcast. That's actually how I learned of Daniel uh, through the social media, soccer social media atmosphere, and I've gotten connected to him that way. Uh, I decided to split this episode into two parts. It was actually the longest podcast that I have ever recorded. So part one, think of it as sort of the appetizer. And part two is sort of the the main entree. Uh, Part one will drop on Wednesday, and part two is going to come this Saturday. So make sure you listen to both sort of in conjunction with one another. That will kind of fill you in on, on some of the gaps. Before we get into the episode, though, I just want to say that this podcast is available on 11 different podcasting platforms, places like Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and of course, Apple Podcast. If you listen to the show on Apple Podcast, make sure that you go there, leave a five-star rating, and a brief review about the show. It will literally take you all of a minute to do that. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to the show. That way you never miss pop-up or bonus episodes of the show. And last week is a great example. I was able to put out three different episodes, three long form episodes. And if you're subscribed to the show, it will automatically show up in your feed on whatever podcasting platform you prefer to listen to. Also, if there's something about the show that you really like, don't ever hesitate to reach out on social media. Very active on Twitter and Instagram. At SoccerCoachJB is my handle. DMs are always open and would love for you to share the show that way with friends and others in the soccer community. All right, let's get into part one, my conversation with Daniel Workman of The Daniel Workman Show. Let me just start by saying that um, your dedication to your podcast of uh, how many episodes you've put out, and um, I, I really like the format. Uh, I, 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 can't tell you this goes back a little ways, but there was a day I was driving home through work, uh, driving home from work and I zipped through, so I have about an hour commute, hour 10 commute each day. Yeah. One way. And, um, I mean, I zipped through a number of episodes, you know, lickety split and, right. uh, I, man, tip of the cap to you for just the dedication. And, uh, you know, I mean, short, sweet to the point, informative, um, I, I absolutely love that. And, and we'll, we'll jump into uh, to that and, you know, and why you started the podcast. But uh, for folks not familiar uh, with your background, Daniel, um, tell folks a little bit about you know, where you grew up, your soccer story,
1: and uh, how sort of this passion for the game really started. So I grew up on the Gulf Coast in South Alabama, two hours east of New Orleans. And even though soccer has grown a lot, um, in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years. When I was growing up, it was very hard to find organized soccer. So I never had the opportunity to play organized soccer growing up. My introduction to the game actually came because one of my friends, when we were four years old, he and his family moved to Brazil. And they, they moved there to be missionaries. And when they came back a couple years later, I came over to their house and um, they were there on a break and, um, you know, was asking them to play your typical American sports, baseball, basketball, American football. And they were like, yeah, we don't play any of those. We play what you would call soccer. We play football. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I was six at this point. And so they were kicking the soccer ball around, and so I just jumped right in. You know, I loved sports, and that was kind of my introduction to the game. So, all of my soccer w- involvement as as a kid growing up was completely unorganized. There was no travel soccer. There was not even rec soccer. It, like I said, it wasn't around um, the area where I grew up. It didn't. E- it didn't even have um, American football league for like peewees. It was mainly uh, you would start playing that in middle school or high school. So most of the sport uh, stuff around was baseball or basketball at a young age. And, um, you know, when I got into high school, I was involved in a lot of stuff. The way our school schedule worked, it was really hard to do sports and some of these other things I was, I was uh, doing at the time. And so I had friends who were like, you should come out and play on the soccer team. And I was like, I don't have time. I've never played organized before, like to jump in at high schools. You know, I just was not um, fully engaged with that at the moment. And so I just, you know, I just had basically this kind of very unorganized, but definite interest in the game, but just no structure, no environment to really, nurture that so when my wife and i were engaged we were in college and we were um having a conversation about you know one day when we have kids and so you start going down that road like when we have kids what is this going to be what is life going to be blah 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 and i told her i said look you know i want i want them to play baseball in the spring and soccer in the fall that's kind of how our season's in in terms of recreational play work down here. And so um, that's kind of what we started with, with my, I have two boys. So with my oldest son, when he was three, started with some YMCA T-ball and some YMCA soccer. And we kept down that path for six years. And then after he played his nine-year-old baseball season, he decided like, I'm done, I just wanna play soccer. And um, my eight-year-old, um, he basically played two years of t-ball and was like, "I'm done. I just want to play soccer." So we we went completely all soccer at that point. And they could have chosen no sports. They could have chosen other sports. I just wanted that to be kind of their starting point. And you know, from that, they they both chose. Um, chose to to play soccer. And so I've coached. Um, I started a club a few years ago, had that for a couple of years. The club lasted three years, but I ran it for two years. And then my oldest had kind of outgrown that club, that travel team. It was a real small squad. It's like 25 players, but you would not think that in South Alabama we could get you know every continent represented except for Antarctica in 25 players in South Alabama, but we managed to do that um, because the club was free to play. There was there was no no pay to play. It was all paid for by sponsors, and that gave us the opportunity to do some some really cool things in terms of getting some kids uh, involved that were not playing organized soccer. And, um, you know, they were not in the U S soccer system. And, and so that, that, that kind of got them into that pathway. And, you know, we had some really, really cool uh, moments and cool times. It's just, for me, I had to evaluate, is this the best environment for, you know, my oldest son at the time, or do I need to find something else for him? And, and, you know, we were, we were looking at, um, you know, what does that look like? And, and so, you know, we've, I've traveled with him to Atlanta. I've tried to with him to Los Angeles. We've trained and, and played over in Holland and in Denmark. So it's, it's, because of some of that, we just there was just no way for me to continue with the club doing the club thing. And so it ran for a year and then and then it kind of you know lost all of its steam and shut down. but um, you know we we'll be going back to Europe this summer and um, and, and doing some more. So you know, we're constantly evaluating, reevaluating, and trying to figure out, you know, what are the best options and opportunities, uh, for both of my boys. And, um, you know, all of that kind of works together in terms of business and passion and pursuit and, you know, kind of why soccer works began. That's a small part of that, uh, motivation.
0: I love the, uh, so something I had told, uh, john peronich on his uh, podcast uh, end of uh, 2018 so he always asked guests the uh, the magical question of you know what a, what a pe- what do people need to know right and um so when he asked me that question my answer that i gave him was that the way things are structured right now currently here in the us that it, it's every every player is you know it's their own individual journey and don't get wrapped up in the group think don't get wrapped up in the well everyone else is going to go play for x club i should too and i, I really like what you said there daniel because of the uh, you know sort of owning the journey you know for for your boys and for your boys owning their journey and that um you know uh, that opportunity to go to europe and experience that i, I can't even imagine how positive that is of an experience, you know, to go to Los Angeles and to experience the the football culture there. Um, again, can you can only imagine? And, you know, I, I think that's something that I always keep in my back pocket, even for my own son and my, my son, you know, I mean, he's, he's not even 10 years old yet. But the fact that, like, you know, we can make these pivots if we have to. And, you know sort of just like i said own the journey because i think too many times players get wrapped up in well i have to play here or i have to play there or i have to do this because you know a bunch of my buddies are doing it or, or something like that and it's like well okay maybe but you know right now we don't have a system a player progression system that allows for a very clear path so since we don't have that it really falls on the individual and the support system they have and you know in your case dad right to support
1: that player to the best that you
0: can and i I think that's fantastic
1: so yeah i often say on about that subject in terms of player pathway and and development track and 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 i think the way that you put it there in terms of you have to kind of own your own individual pathway which is which is absolutely true and one of the things I, I I say often is the fact that if a player makes it an American player makes it they make it despite the system not because of it and on a macro level I think it's a really really important point that parents need to understand and if you understand that point that your player your son or daughter is going to make it despite the system, not because of the system, it frees you up to make different decisions. You don't feel like you have to just do, you know, the obvious pathway that has been kind of laid out, which is a very dysfunctional pathway. It's a very elitist pathway in terms of access, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the the amount of financial investment that you have to put in and you know, I mean, quite frankly, you know, my wife and I were having a discussion recently about our our oldest son and, you know, what we're looking at in terms of his, you know, next four years uh, until he's 18, you know, what does that look like? And, you know, when we are evaluating, what is it worth? for him to, to do X versus Y, what is more beneficial? Like if I'm going to have to spend, you know, X amount of money, then what's the best use of that money? Where, where is he going to, you know, blossom and develop the best? And, and so, you know, we're, we're facing some, some pretty, you know, tough decisions. Um, because some of those decisions you know mean that he'll be away from us as a family um, in the near future you know before he's 18. so but at the same time we made a deal um, and that that kind of is what started at when he was nine when he walked away from baseball we made a deal and we the deal was if you work really really hard and you're committed and you stick with it then as your parents, we'll do everything in our power to resource that, whatever that looks like. And, you know, we can't promise you the moon, but we will, you know, we'll do everything in our power. So because of that commitment on his end, we have a commitment on our end that we are always trying to fulfill. And it does mean evaluating some tough decisions and decisions that, you know, you know, for a country like America, we shouldn't be having to have, uh, to make those decisions at 13, 14 years old. But, um, you know, if you have big dreams and you want to work really, really hard, living in America and, and, and pursuing uh, soccer is not necessarily the best option. So then you're, you're, you're looking at a whole host of different options of what does that look like for you as a family? What does that look like for you as a 13 or 14-year-old kid? And so, you know, it's unfortunate but it is the reality. And as much as I'm on on one side, you know, fighting that fight and talking about those issues, on the other hand, I have to also face the reality of the present and deal with what we have and try to make the best of it.
0: Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to uh, when you're talking about the club um, that he was at and that you were a part of. And uh, there was something that you said that was really uh, intriguing to me of you know, we live, we live in a model where many clubs operate with, you know, pay to play and, uh, had a, a conversation with someone last summer, uh, at a coaching course. Uh, so I went across the the state of Pennsylvania out near Philadelphia and was doing some coaching education last summer and, um, was just asking, you know, uh, some of the coaches there, how much does it cost for a player to play for your club? And, So I, I, I know the club that I currently coach for and my son plays for what, you know, what we charge and, you know, in, in the Philadelphia area, it was about double that. Okay. So it might cost a little more to live in in that part of the state, you know, whatever. I mean, we're talking significant money, you know, close to five grand, uh, in some cases. And my eyes about jumped out of my head (laughs) when I, when I heard that. And so you know, back to your situation that, um, one, I, I think that's fantastic because I think one of our barriers in this country is absolutely access. And I have worked with players that, you know, have told me point blank financially, coach, I'd love to play for you. I can't, we can't afford it as a family. And that absolutely breaks my heart. You know, when I, when I hear those things and, um, I don't know, tell me about that experience and, and what that was like for you. And, um, you know, even what maybe your son has shared.
1: Yeah. So uh, from a cultural standpoint, it was fantastic. You know, you had this melting pot in, in, in this small squad and um, you know, it was, it was a really cool experience on a cultural side in terms of the realities of running a program like that. And, I, and I've consulted with a lot of clubs on this issue in terms of how do we get kids who are on the outside looking in involved in, in your program, money is an obstacle. There's there's no doubt. I mean, some of these programs are very, very expensive and you, you can't just kind of toss that to the side and say, look, you know, it doesn't really matter. I mean, if you really want it that bad enough, you'll, you'll get involved, you'll find a way to pay for it. That's not necessarily the case as, as you alluded to as well. But the bigger issue that we found is that in finding kids who are on the outside looking in, oftentimes it's as much about transportation to and from practice, to and from matches, as it is fees. I mean, I actually had some kids that could afford the fee or or a partial fee if we were to charge one, but had no way to get to and from practice unless we we, we were driving them. So, I mean, I would literally pull up, to this um, trailer park where a bunch of these uh, South American kids lived and they would just pile into my Jeep and, and then we would head to practice. And um, so, I mean, there's a lot of issues that go along with the the setup and, you know, as long as our system, from top to bottom meaning professional to am, you know adult amateur down to youth is upside down meaning that the parents are paying for the kids because of the fact that we don't have the commercial might on the top end. So in America we have we have a 5 billion plus you know dollar per year economy, soccer economy in the youth space. Major League Soccer does less than a billion dollars a year. So when you look at that it's a 5 to 1 ratio. And when you scale down from Major League Soccer it falls off the abyss really fast. The USL is nowhere close to Major League Soccer in terms of financial might. And then when you go beyond you know the USL then it it gets even smaller peanuts. So when you have the top aspects that the big revenue and commercial drivers of the sport globally starved financially from a resource standpoint the only way that youth programming can work and to do some of the things that are being attempted is that the parents are going to have to pay for it or you're going to, you're going to have to find some really, really big corporate partners. And, and sometimes you find that, you know, we, we did some of that. We, but for us, we viewed every kid as an expense or an investment versus every kid being, you know, a revenue producer because they weren't paying us. And, and that meant we had to stay smaller. All of our coaches were volunteers. They, all, of, you know, all of the guys were, um, you know, South American, except for me. And, you know, they grew up with the game, you know. So one of the guys was in his fifties. And, and, you know, another guy was, you know, around 40. And 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 I had another guy that was just out of high school. But I had like the, you know, kind of a good range. And they they all brought like this amazing experience of of what they knew about the game to, you know, the sidelines and to these kids. And and it was great because when we would play matches like it was n- unlike anything else around because it was me and, and my guys my, my assistant coaches and, and we're all like talking and 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 talking to the team and very much this kind of south american way of coaching which is different in, in a lot of cases than than what a lot of kids experience and so we would we would you know show up and play these games and they're you know hollering da back and forth and for me i loved it because i felt like man it's coming to life like you know and because my favorite league in the world is la liga in spain so like i i love that you know that is the 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 game the version of the game that i love the most i mean i, I watch the premier league and i and i i love soccer played at the highest levels but for me just the the style of play of la liga is is my favorite and so just having that was, was really cool. And, you know, we, we had to work through all those issues, language barriers, you know, translators. I, I, I speak, you know, a little bit of Spanish, but not enough to feel comfortable to go have a conversation with a a parent who can't speak any English. And so, you know, I would take them with me and we would kind of talk and I would talk and then I would kind of hand it over to them and they would just go back and forth and, you know, handle some things, get paperwork signed. We'd have to track, you know, parents down at eight, nine o'clock at night, getting in from work and saying, Hey, your son cannot play unless this form is signed. We, you know, so there was a lot of that kind of, you know, hustle work that it's when you, when you're running a pay to play club, you know, and you've got a thousand customers, Are you going to chase that one or two or five or ten probably not you know it's just more of a nuisance but if you want to get those kids involved these are some of the things that you're going to have to do in order to engage them and engage their families and you know we we found and, and me particularly i found that i had to build trust and that trust was over time it wasn't something that was going to be a magic wand i had to invest in, in getting to know their kids and getting to know them. Um, my son and I've been playing the same um, group of Latino pickup soccer. Uh, they're, they're all adults, but we've been playing for almost four years every week. And so part of that deal was building those relationships in and, and not that's not why we did it it just it was out of those relationships where it kind of taught me that lesson that i if i go to places and build relationships where other people haven't been willing to go and engage you know then doors will open and kids will get involved that were not getting involved before i
0: can't uh i mean there you can't put a price tag on what you've done for young people and the you know what you said about trust i mean meeting people where they are you know and uh you know going into their neighborhoods and going into their environment and um you know just trying to be an ally and an advocate and uh i agree i mean trust isn't something that um you know, we can snap our fingers and just magically have it with anyone, parent, player, uh, family member, you know, whomever. And the fact that, um, you know, you, you worked your tail off uh, over three years to do that is uh, I think that's pretty damn cool, man. I mean, that's that's inspiring to me as a coach. Um,
1: well, I want to tell you, I want—I don't know that I've ever told this story on a podcast before. So I'm going to give you a, a little story from that time that yeah. is probably. It's probably my favorite story, and that is we had this kid. He's an African refugee. His name is Enoch, and um, I I came to know Enoch through his older brother who played for my brother-in-law at an inner city mobile high school. And so where we would train was about 30 minutes away and Enoch's family was a lot was a lot like a lot of our players families and that is that their their parents were working there was a lot of people living in a small house and you know transportation was absolutely an issue so if Enoch came to practice it was me driving 30 minutes one way to go pick him up 30 minutes back and then taking him back after practice and I did it as much as I possibly could but when he he first started with us. Um, we, we brought him a few times and, um, there was a, there was a day that I told him, I, I can't come get you tomorrow. So if you can get a ride, fantastic. If not, well, I'll, I'll, I'll come pick you up on Saturday, but I I can't get you tomorrow. I've got, I've got a conflict, schedule conflict and coach, um, my brother-in-law, uh, Coach Moody, he, he can't get you either. He's got a schedule conflict. So, you know, if you can't get a ride, no worries. I'll see you on Saturday. So I find out after the fact on Saturday, he doesn't make it to practice. This is a Thursday. D- doesn't make it to practice. And but I find out after the fact that he so wanted to come to practice that he started walking.
0: Hmm.
1: Wow. 30 minute drive one way. He starts walking and um to get east west out of Mo- downtown Mobile heading east towards Florida, you primarily go through one of two tunnels. And so he got all the way down to the tunnel in downtown Mobile and was just so tired. He was like I can't I can't finish. And so he had, he called somebody to come pick him up. The kid was at the time, like 11 years old. Jeez, but he, he just wanted, like he loved the game and he wanted to play and he didn't want to miss practice. And, you know, I felt terrible, you know, that I couldn't get him, but I loved that childlike, you know, desire and passion to play. You know, I mean, we, we, with him, it wasn't just covering it his expenses and fees. Like we had to buy in cleats and shin guards and like he didn't have anything. Um, he would he would try to like wear hand-me-downs and they were either like way too big or they were, you know, old and, and really small. And so, you know, we we just had to do it. But, you know, the cool thing was is like we would get hear stories of him going to school and like he would always be wearing like his futsal shoes. Mm-hmm. You know, he was just so proud of these shoes and so I mean like those kind of stories is what I loved about what we had and you know, I feel like we can we can do that all over the country but we have to be willing to get out of our you know, comfort zone, out of our boxes and you know, walk into those neighborhoods, make those connections, talk to people and just say, "Look, I'm for you. I'm not against you. I'm not I'm not trying to fleece you. I'm just, I want to, I want to make a difference. I want to try to help. Uh And, um, and, and let's see what we can figure out. What would you say uh, just
0: based on your experience or observation or, uh, you know, even the work you're doing with your podcast, what are we doing right uh, in this country when it comes to soccer?
1: What are we doing right? Well, who is the we? Mm. Uh,
0: great question. Um, you know, uh, hmm. let me think about how to rephrase that.
1: Because um, it's such a big generalization. Yeah, it's hard for it's hard for me to know which way to go with that answer. Well, l- let me
0: maybe ask it this way: um, Based on your experiences, uh, what what have you seen that has been a positive uh, in terms of soccer culture, uh, you know, here in the U.S.?
1: Well, I would say number one, there, you know, you we can have a entire interview and podcast about pay to play and how to try to minimize the the effects of pay to play on development, et cetera, et cetera. But setting that to the side um the fact that you have more clubs around the country that have popped up in the last you know 10 to 15 years is a good thing. Um, you know, I think that's been positive. I've seen growth from that aspect being in a part of the country that is not known for producing world-class soccer players, although you know America, hasn't really produced a world-class soccer player, but you get my point. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're, we are not known as a soccer hotbed, I guess is a better way to say it. Uh, we, we put out players, to the NFL, um, all the time. I mean, my high school alone has six players in the NFL right now, um, which is crazy because the, the, um, the town is 25,000 people. It's a suburb outside of mobile Um, we should not have six players much less one in the nfl so it's not that we don't have athletes around the country it's it's that we've just not figured out a way to produce soccer players and in terms of the the growth or the positive things i've seen is the fact that more and more clubs and access to clubs is popping up just from a from a number standpoint um I think the fact that the game is more accessible on, on television and social media is is positive. I don't necessarily think that's something that quote unquote, we have done Um, whether that's us soccer or major league soccer. I think it's more about the general American soccer market, which is far in a way outpacing us soccer and MLS in terms of, fans and and engagement so you know the fact that more people are watching has meant more access um for americans to watch the game which has been unbelievable in the last 10 years the the growth uh from that standpoint which i think has made a huge difference um and you know i think from a you know um for all of the things that major league soccer does completely weird and backwards and um, different for being different sake. The one thing that I think that they have attempted to do and have done so better than any other league in the country of the last 20 years is pomp and circumstance. So they have tried to mimic the experience of Champions League or, you know, a Barcelona-Madrid-Clasico. Now, I don't think they execute everything very well when when you compare it to a global standard. I don't think they're pulling that off very well. But if you look at it in comparison to the rest of the American soccer market, I think that they're far and away killing everybody. And I I think most of these leagues, all the way down to the youth to the youth systems, have done a very poor job in that department. And it makes a big difference because when a kid turns on a a Premier League match on a Saturday morning or a Barcelona match early Saturday afternoon. And then they go and watch a you know a, a an amateur match in the NPSL or a USL match, you know, with a pro team, semi-pro team, they're not getting the same experience. You know, set aside the number of fans and the you know the size of a stadium, you know, I'm not saying that if you're a amateur club that You got to have fifty thousand people, you know, beating drums. I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is, is that the presentation before the match, during the match, after the match, is not what the kid is used to seeing when he turns on the TV. And Major League Soccer has made a concerted effort to try to copy that and mimic that as much as possible. So, from you know, the back to the what have quote unquote we done that that is been good that part has been good for major league soccer that they are trying to do that um you know it's not to those standards but again you know compared to everybody else they are doing in terms of the in terms of just inside the u.s they are doing a better job than everybody else in that department and um you know so i think the rest of these leagues Need to start thinking through those things about production quality, the pregame, you know, halftime, postgame, um, you know, fan experience, and, you know, the presentations of the teams and, you know, all of that pomp and circumstance that surrounds what they see on TV. Like, if we really want our soccer culture to grow, that's an easy way to me that we can start to get our local communities connected to the game because there, there are a lot of people that are watching, you know, they're, they're taking time. They're watching on their phone. They're watching clips or what, you know, and and the more and more that that happens, the more and more you're going to, to see, you know, clips pop up in the sports center and other programs where it's like, Hey, we've got to cover some soccer because people are watching this and it's growing. And, you know, if, if we will do that, then we're going to get even more eyeballs down the road. And ultimately in the end, what that does is give us the opportunity to flip the economic model on its head, you know, back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is we can, we can actually start to get some commercial dollars into the system from the top end rather than the bottom end. And when we do that, then, you know, we can start having some different conversations about, you know, how much parents are having to to, to pay, or w- what a club is getting rewarded in terms of development. I mean, you know, there are a lot of things that have to go into that that have to get fixed, you know, to, and, and get into proper alignment for things to work. But when we start doing the things we can control better, then we can start having a a, a better conversation. I mean, the fact that we have, you know. Chattanooga FC and Detroit city FC, which in the last 10 years are the two amateur sides that everyone kind of holds up as the Holy grail, right? These two have done it better than, than most other amateur clubs in the country. And that's not to say that other clubs aren't doing some really good things. I'm not saying that I'm just saying over the last 10 years, these two clubs you would put at the top of the list, one and two in some order. If we had 50 of those clubs right now, we would be having a different conversation about the American system and what is the next step. And even though these, these two clubs are, are not the norm, they are, you know, anomalies in the American market. The fact that they exist means that 48 more could exist. And so learning what they did right, learning about what they've learned over the last 10 years to get them to where they are today means that a lot of clubs have some, some really good things to study to, to take some shortcuts that they don't have to go through the school of hard knocks. It doesn't may not take them 10 years. It may take them five. It may take them four that if they execute on those things and learn from chattanooga and learn from detroit and learn from some of these other clubs that they can begin to connect with their communities in a really really deep way that then begins to open up the door for their club to get into that conversation and i think that is something that could be done better but i think it is one of the things that has been done well in terms of communicating you know what what have we done what have we learned and that is what detroit and chattanooga have been doing you know they tried they they did a conference last year i was at that conference in chattanooga where they were they kind of opened up everything and said okay here's who we are here's what we do here's here's what our budgets look like here's what and they and they welcomed you in and 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 basically said like you know kind of learn from us and we want to learn from you if we could kind of all in the soccer community kind of embrace that mentality and, and learn from the information that available, then I, I think we can actually speed up some of the progression that needs to take place for American soccer to really, really begin to improve and have an opportunity to, you know, have a, a real soccer culture in all at, aspects in all areas of the country, as opposed to a couple dozen cities right now.
0: The United States could be, and I think should be, the greatest soccer country on earth. Together, we can get there. Let's talk. That is a quote from DanielWorkman.com. And if you haven't had a chance to check out Daniel's work and his daily show, go there and check it out, available at 9 o'clock every morning, Monday through Friday. Part two of this episode will air this Saturday, so make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and you'll get the entree to the appetizer that was this episode. I love Daniel's passion and I love that he wants to get soccer right in this country. It takes more people like Daniel, John Pranich, John Townsend, Chris Kessel, myself, all rowing in the same direction. We need more of you to get on the wagon and try and reform U.S. soccer. All right, guys, catch you real soon on Saturday with part two of this episode. And until then, this has been the On the Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater.